I would like to report that Laura and I have recently settled a long-running dispute. I came from humble beginnings. Well, not humble, exactly. You've met my father. But what I'm trying to say is we didn't have a lot of cash lying around. Consequently, I grew up blowing my nose with toilet paper. When I was a kid, if you had the sniffles, you walked to the house's single bathroom, hoped it wasn't occupied, and helped yourself to a couple of squares. If you had a cold, you could even have a whole roll to yourself on the floor next to your mattress. When we went shopping, I would see Kleenex in the aisles and wonder what kind of Rockefeller could afford to throw away so much money on a box of facial tissues. Screw the rules, I have money. To this day, I will still head to the nearest bathroom every time I need to blow my nose. This drives Laura up the wall. There's a box of Kleenex right there, she'll say, in her voice loud enough that I have to turn down her gain every time we record the podcast. God damn it, Newman. But the habit is so well-worn that it will never disappear. I just don't reach for that Kleenex. Laura has also been known to insist that, since I use so many sheets of toilet paper when I blow my nose, it is surely more expensive to use toilet paper than to just use Kleenex. This has always struck me as unlikely, and I would occasionally, usually while carefully folding a few sheets of toilet paper for a good blow, consider doing some basic arithmetic to settle the matter once and for all. But for more than a decade, that's as far as it went. Until now. We don't spring for name-brand Kleenex, but, and perhaps this is TMI, we are a Charmin Ultra Strong family, which should bolster Laura's case. When I blow my nose, I use four squares of toilet paper, but if I use Kleenex, which I rarely do, I'm still using two tissues. I blow my nose with sufficient force that a single tissue invariably results in disaster. Oh my god, I can't stand this segment already. A big package of Charmin Ultra Strong has 264 sheets per roll, with 24 rolls per package. And where we shop, that'll run you $29.98. That comes down to $0.0024 per square. For 0.47 cents per square, that is. The three-ply tissues that we buy have 78 tissues per box, and Superstore charges $6.99 for a six-pack. That comes to $0.0149 per tissue, or 1.5 cents per tissue. This means that for me, it costs me 1.88 cents to blow my nose if I use toilet paper, but a whopping 2.98 cents to blow my nose if I use tissues. And that's using store brand tissues. Sure, I could try using a single tissue instead of doubling up, but I could also scrimp on toilet paper when I needed toilet paper with similarly disgusting results. <laughs> so, we've determined that it is indeed cheaper for me to continue blowing my nose with toilet paper, about two cents a blow, compared to blowing it with Kleenex, three or more cents a blow, especially if we spring for the name brand. But doing this math has forced me to confront the fact that blowing my nose costs between two and three cents, plus tax, every time. And since I did that math to settle this long-running argument, I cannot help but think about the cost every single time I blow my nose. This is Cursed Knowledge.
Life, the universe, and everything else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Cursed Knowledge. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I'll be your host tonight on this show dedicated to cursed knowledge. This is your warning. If you do not want any more cursed knowledge, turn the show off now. You will only learn things today that will bring you pain. (gasps) There's something on your face! (laughs) It was pain! Alright, so... Now that that's out of the way, with me today, my co-hosts are Jem Newman. Hello. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. To start off our show all about cursed knowledge, what better topic than the curse of knowledge? Lauren, take it away. Contrary to your warning to our listeners, this is actually a very hopeful segment. I thought for a show on cursed knowledge that it would be funny for me to suggest a topic that is the phenomenon known as the curse of knowledge. To the surprise of my smart ass, Ashwin thought it was a good idea. (laughs) I realized as I did some research that a lot of my work and training as a technical communicator helps remove this curse of knowledge from documentation, so I'm also going to give you some tips for writing or presenting that can help you mitigate it. Yes, as I said, a helpful and somewhat uplifting segment from Lauren. It's been a couple of months. So what is the curse of knowledge? I can't sum it up better than the first sentence of the wiki article, so here's what that says. The curse of knowledge is a cognitive bias that occurs when an individual who is communicating with other individuals assumes that they have the background knowledge to understand. This bias is also called by some authors the curse of expertise. It seems straightforward to me, even though I would have written that summary a bit more clearly. But let's break it down. I am aware of and attempting to mitigate the irony of invoking the curse of knowledge while explaining it. (laughs) You, the company expert on creating a certain type of purchasing document, are tasked with teaching the process to a new hire who has never worked for your company before. You open your training with the following. We write RFPs and RFQs and sometimes RFQSs. We work with the SCMPAs to help the requisitioners, and the requisitioners provide the TRs, Well, we need to pull together the GRs, which correspond to what the work is, and the Part A docs, which correspond to whether the project is an RFP or an RFQ. The GCs are written by the lawyers, so those are in a locked template, but you should always review the requisitioners' TRs because sometimes they put in tendering language or stuff that should live in the GRs, but you can't edit those directly, so you have to discuss it with the requisitioner. Oh, but we can't deal directly with the recs, so you have to go through the PA to work with them. I know some of these words. That, in a (laughs) nutshell, is my actual day job. Uh, That's what I do uh, for a living. I've heard a lot of these words before. My personal curse of knowledge. I understood like maybe (laughs) three quarters of that, which is still distressing to me. Yeah, I'm sorry. I I need to distance myself more from the corporate world. (laughs) My perpetual curse of knowledge is that the paragraph that I just said out loud makes sense to me. For anyone else who has no clue about my company's culture, the history behind decisions, a knowledge of the documents that we use and how to find them, or the supply chain management field itself, 
will make them end up with little question marks for pupils, except for Jim, apparently. <laughs> the term curse of knowledge was coined in 1990 by Elizabeth Newton, who was a Stanford graduate student in psychology. She devised a tappers and listeners study. One person would tap a very common song out on the table, and the other person would have to guess what the song was. I tried really hard to do to do a sort of tapping challenge, but that would make for horrible audio, so you're just going to have to imagine it, listeners. <laughs> so after the tapper tapped... Give it a little tappy. Tap, tap, tap But before the listener guessed, Newton asked the tappers to predict the probability that the listeners would correctly guess the song. They predicted about 50% would get it right. Do we have any guesses on how many songs people actually got right? Oh, almost none. Two percent. Laura, any? Uh, I uh, will go with five percent. I am guessing like basically none. I'll guess zero. That's fine. Because I always pick if this is like a thing that people are doing. I always pick Jingle Bells, which I feel like is the easiest song to guess and nobody ever gets it. <laughs> so out of 120 songs, the listeners guessed three correctly. That's 2.5%. 2.5%. So Jem was pretty much bang on. When the tappers figured out it would be 50%. And that is the curse of knowledge right there. Because the tappers couldn't help but hear the tune in their head as they were tapping away. The listeners did not have access to that knowledge. So even if they knew the tune, it was impossible to pick out from monotone taps. We see this in so many settings from corporate buzzwords to personal recipes. Everybody's heard, knead the dough until it feels right. What's right? Mm. How will I know? Give me some concrete goals. (laughs) For solutions on how to avoid these problems, I get to talk about rules in my chosen field of technical communication, which exists mostly to impart information to people who need it, clearly and concisely, breaking that curse of knowledge, if it's done correctly. The first rule is, know your audience. Spend some time thinking about what the audience is hearing when you are speaking. Get feedback from other people especially those who do not have your depth of knowledge on the subject. The second rule is, break the information into very small pieces. If you are writing or explaining instructions for a process, walk through the process yourself and jot down everything you do, even if it's as mundane as open word or click on the second tab to the right. Details matter, and having short, easy-to-follow steps can ground your audience and make it easy for them to backtrack if they get lost. The third rule is, show, don't tell. Include concrete examples that show real-world applications instead of theory. If your audience has to make a choice, list out the factors that will inform that choice. Make a flowchart or other diagram that can help guide your audience. The fourth rule is, get feedback. Check in with your audience to make sure they are getting the information. Ask open-ended questions. Have them describe the process back to you in their own words. Have them ask questions. If they still aren't getting the information, take a step back and think about where the disconnect lies between you and them. The final rule of TechCom where it relates to the curse of knowledge is be patient. Don't get frustrated if you have to find different ways to explain concepts. You won't be able to avoid the curse of knowledge in all instances. You're going to have people looking at you with question marks where their pupils should be. But follow those five rules know your audience, break the information into very small pieces, show, don't tell get feedback, and be patient. And you can hopefully break the curse. So thank you for coming to what turned into my weird little TED Talk with my cursed knowledge of technical communication. (laughs) Hire more technical communicators? Nah, we'll just make people who are totally unqualified do those jobs instead. 
Oh, thanks. That's <laughs> why <laughs> nobody wants to pay the salary I'm worth. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, I, I imagine that the, the fact that I was able to parse your talk cursed with knowledge had a large amount to do with the fact that a company that I worked for had a contract with the company that you worked for for 10 years. Probably. Yeah, I think I worked on that contract at least once. All right, I'm going to go next. I'm going to tell you about a piece of knowledge that has stayed in my brain since my undergraduate biology degree. We begin with a quote from National Geographic. Sam Ballard was 19 years old when friends at a party dared him to swallow a slug. You. Within days, the Australian teen developed a rare form of meningitis and fell into a coma that lasted more than a year. Even after waking up, he remains paralyzed from the neck down. Sam Ballard is the victim of rat lungworm, which burrowed into his brain from the raw slug that he ate. Slugs and snails, I learned when I took parasitology in undergrad, show up in just a horrifying number of parasite life cycles. It's very likely that I have mentioned this on the show before, because as I said, it's one of the more lasting pieces of specific knowledge from my undergrad career. And every time I think about people eating snails, my guts clench a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to pass that on to you in hopes that you might be saved from any of a number of horrifying parasitic infections. With apologies to our listeners who are fans of French cuisine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to enjoy escargot. Everyday French with Pierre Escargot. Oh, yeah. I had it once and I did not enjoy it. It was fine. I mean, like with a lot of things, if you had enough cheese and butter, I mean, you're fine. Yeah, butter and garlic. Yeah. And I suspect that the ones I had were not well done, like well cooked, because they were both rubbery and gritty. Mm. Yeah, that sounds bad. That reminds me of my few experiences with oysters, all of which were at Foodie Goody. Oh, no. Chinese buffet. (laughs) There are easier ways to unalive yourself, Jem. (laughs) (laughs) So how come snails are the key to so many of these parasites and their life cycles? Quote, snails hold a lot of parasites, says Heather Stockdale Walden, a parasitologist at the University of Florida, who has documented the spread of rat lungworm in southern Florida. Parasites want a host that will be eaten, and snails are food for lots of animals, including birds. Snails can play many different roles in the life cycles of parasites, and they're especially good at being intermediate hosts between one or two other kinds of animals, like between fish and humans, due to them being present and being eaten both in the water and on land. Not a lot of food sources that travel between that barrier. Snail-borne parasitic diseases can impact almost any organ, but the top of the list includes the lungs, liver, biliary tract, intestines, brain, and kidneys. We need all of those to live. (laughs) (laughs) They cause everything from overactive immune responses to cancers, infertility, and death. And there is only one thing we say to death. Not today. So yes, we do need those to live. (laughs) Generally. Countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America have the highest incidences of these diseases. 
but the global spread of snails means that some endemic parasites have developed into worldwide epidemics. Snail-borne parasitic diseases, or SBPDs, are major parasitic diseases that remain important public health issues worldwide. And they're so common and so numerous that they have an acronym. Like, isn't that disturbing? (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea that this was acronym worthy. Oh my. Snail-borne parasitic diseases. Technically, it's an initialism. Yes. uh, Okay, I'm so sorry. Millions of people in approximately 90 countries have suffered from SPBDs, in which snails serve as the transmitting vectors and intermediate hosts. So here's a quick rundown of some especially horrible and or common ones, with a special focus on ones you can get in North America, where most of our listenership is. First up, not as much in North America, although people suffer from it all over the world because of travel. Schistosomiasis, da-da-da, also known as... Maybe you can help me with this pronunciation, Jim. Bilharzia? Oh, no. No, no, no I, I haven't actually right. heard that term. We always just called it schistosomiasis. Yeah, okay. Other known some places as Bilharzia is in terms of some measures of impact, second only to malaria as the most devastating parasitic disease. Oof. The parasites that cause schistosomiasis live in some freshwater snails. The infectious larval form of the parasite, known as cercariae, Emerge from the snail into the water. You can become infected when your skin comes in contact with any amount of contaminated fresh water. Yikes. So just you happen to trip and step in a puddle with your sandal on. Yeah. Something I read was that drinking the water is not a problem for schistosomiasis, but the contact that you have your lips, etc. with the water is a problem. Mm -hmm. Wait, so like if you had it in a funnel... If you were some, I'm just thought experimenting here. You, <laughs> it probably can't you, survive the stomach acid, I think. Okay, but what about yeah. your mucus membranes? Oh, I don't well, know. They're, they're pretty <laughs> coated with mucus a lot of the time, but people's lips and skin has all sorts of... Hanging on points. Anyway, also something I saw that horrified me was several places where it said, like, if you accidentally come into contact with fresh water for a moment... You can try vigorously rubbing the area with a towel because that might prevent the parasites from latching on. But it's not a guarantee. Like, don't go swimming and then towel off. That's not going to work. Like, for brief exposures. That's terrifying. Yep. That's like chemical level stuff. Yeah. And it's in all of the fresh water in Southern Africa, essentially, which just, oh. Can you get immune to it? Like, not really. Not as far as I can tell. Mostly you get overwhelmed with an incredible amount of them. Okay. So you're, if I understand correctly, you're suggesting that most people who live in sub-Saharan Africa are infected, but just they have a sufficiently low parasitic load that it's not deadly? It is very common and you can get by just fine with a few of them. But once they start to build up, you start getting things like intermittent biliary blockages and things like that which just don't have good endings nope that sounds bad (laughs) unless you like the color yellow oh yeah yeah all right i got sidetracked from the order that this information was supposed to go in but once you get infected by one of these things in the few days following the infection you might develop a rash or itchy skin kind of the very initial part Fever, chills, cough, and muscle aches begin about one or two months after that, as the body begins to react to the presence of adult eggs and worms. 
So the symptoms of schistosomiasis are mostly caused by the immune system's reaction rather than by worms or anything produced by the worms directly. When adult worms are present, the eggs that are produced usually travel to the intestine, liver, or bladder, causing inflammation and scarring. And children who are repeatedly infected can develop anemia, malnutrition, and learning difficulties. Repeated infection in childhood is common and has really devastating effects. Granted, I may not be the smartest kid in school, but I think it's bad! Next up, we have rat lungworm. Not getting any more cheerful. That this is where we started the so segment. Bad. Yep. <laughs> right? It's, just, it's, it's so it gross. Like a, like a Trek disease. <laughs> yeah. So it's called that. I didn't actually put this in my segment, but I did read a lot about it. Because it it's one of those horrible things that, and this is a weirdly common thing that parasites do too, is they, with their adult ones, make it to the heart, they mate there, and then some of them end up getting coughed up via the lungs and then into the stomach where they end up in the poop and that's how everything starts again. It's horrible. It's just so bad. There is a way, way too graphic description of the way that rat lungworms mate in the rat's heart being pummeled by flows of hot blood. No thanks. <laughs> now you've all heard that also. There was a warning at the top of the show. What can I say? It's Lauren's segment. <laughs> okay, okay. So, rat lungworm is where we started. It's a parasitic roundworm. Rats are the primary host for that parasite, as the name would suggest, and the only animal in which the worm can complete its life cycle. When humans are accidentally infected with rat lungworm, usually by eating a snail, the worm can't fully mature or reproduce. And score, right? All good. Nothing bad is going to happen. However, before they die, larvae travel through the human body and settle near the brain, mimicking the behavior they'd normally do in rats, which can sometimes cause a lethal inflammation of the brain. And all known cases of rat lungworm disease in humans are linked to slug and snail contact. This one, again, is found largely in tropical and subtropical areas, but cases have been diagnosed in over 30 countries, including in the south and west of the United States. It is coming for us. Slugs and snails and rats are all creatures that are extremely easy to transport accidentally and introduce into new areas. Unwelcome mollusks are regularly intercepted in customs and border patrol inspections of imports, and it would be impossibly expensive to search them all out. Like, some of them are so small. Yeah. So the U.S. spread of rat lungworm is expected to continue. In 2017, Hawaii's state epidemiologist, Sarah Park, said that they now have about 10 human cases of rat lungworm a year. And these are only the ones that the worms settle somewhere where the brain freaks out about it. Oh, boy. Right? I don't like that. Don't like that. <laughs> no. No. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No. No. No, 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 no! Hell no! Snails are also accidentally or purposefully consumed by pets and other animals, particularly when the creatures get into drinking water. In Florida, the parasite has turned up in dogs, miniature horses, birds, and various wild animals, and is even believed to have killed a white-handed gibbon at Miami's Metro Zoo in 2004. Aww. So, that's rat lungworm. Don't like that. Two more quick ones. <laughs> <laughs> Paragonomyces 
is an inflammatory lung disease. Approximately 20 million people are infected with Paragonimus species as of the World Health Organization in 2002, and 293 million are at risk of infection. It's primarily endemic to China, Korea, and Japan, but has been detected in the United States and Canada. This parasite can infect human lungs, brain, spinal cord, and other organs, causing pulmonary, neurological, and abdominal diseases. Delightful. Fasciolysis is a disease caused by the liver fluke or trematode. So liver flukes are a big deal, especially in Asia. They are more what I was describing when things will like block things up and there'll be so many in you. It is F. hepatica, which is typically acquired by consuming undercooked seafood, including snails. It causes disease when the immature trematode moves to the liver, resulting in fever, vomiting, pain, and enlargement of the liver. Later, when they invade the bile duct, infected people will get biliary obstructions and inflammation. Sometimes the flukes migrate to other organs where they cause mayhem essentially at random. Oh, good. Yeah, they can cause, like, they're just eating you basically and trying to attach themselves, and then they sort of get these cocoons around them. There's a better word for the cyst. And then that causes inflammation, yada, yada. How are we still alive? (laughs) Right? There's so many things that can kill us. But the reality is that there are millions and millions of people in the world who are walking around with a really heavy parasite load that could be ameliorated. But the healthcare system isn't there or isn't working properly. This one, this fasciolysis, is a growing problem with over 20 million cases reported worldwide each year and is found on every continent except Antarctica. Hmm. Cool. So how can you protect yourself from evil snails? (laughs) Very famous, very evil. Sounds like Don't don't blame the snails. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? (laughs) Yeah. There's actually, it's widely accepted. I didn't put it in here because this was already getting long, but that eradicating snails is a reasonable way to go after these diseases because they typically aren't the most important ecological like niche. There are other things that will take their place quite easily. And it's really effective. It's way more effective than all of these like anti-helminth medications that are losing their potency. But if you get rid of the snails and the parasites like the snails, wouldn't they just go to the next thing that everything is eating? Like, wouldn't we just be systematically removing all of the bird food? <laughs> Doing Maybe, that anyway? but that would take a really long time to evolve. Oh, yeah. We'll extinct, extinct ourselves before then. Don't worry. <laughs> right? <laughs> there will be other problems. God. I'm definitely on board with uh, with taking out every mosquito. I don't know. Snail seems a bridge too far for me. I don't know. Yeah, I understand. I understand. But you know what? Slugs can go straight to hell. <laughs> in a targeted way. There's not <laughs> enough salt in the world. Not enough salt in the world. Damn slugs eating my garden. So how can you protect yourself from evil snails and slugs? Number one, don't eat them or touch them. It's not <laughs> worth it. They're icky. <laughs> They're not good. They can, many of these parasites can be killed with between one to three minutes of a rolling boil, but many dishes involving snails are often served less cooked than that. Not good. Number two, teach your children not to eat or handle snails, even on a dare. Sam Ballard, he who ate a snail on a dare, isn't alone. There are at least three reported cases of disease involving boys or young men who are dared to eat a slug or a snail. Toxic masculinity right there. Yeah, that's known cases. Number three, vegetarians. Did you think you were safe? Think again. Oh, nope. I, I never think I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Leaf lettuces, a favorite of snails and slugs, can be particularly problematic, as snails can be tiny and even a fragment is enough. Even the mucus or slime of an infected snail can be enough. Thoroughly wash any produce, especially from the garden. Most of these things can't live longer than a few days outside of a host, so stuff from the grocery store is actually safer in this case. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this just reminds me, when I was in Brazil many years ago, it was very common for grocery store lettuce to have slugs on it. So you'd Mm. have, like, washing it, you'd have to be very careful because pretty much every household, different grocery stores, there was often slugs on the lettuce. Yeah. As if I wasn't already scared of slime enough. (laughs) Yeah, like, see, uh, okay, I'll talk about this in my segment. Go ahead, keep telling us what to fear. Number four is not applicable to most of us here, but be aware when you travel of areas where any contact with natural fresh water carries that risk. If you live in or visit one of those places, take precautions like only using water that has been boiled or which has been in a clean holding tank for two plus days to bathe in. Like I said, they don't live very long outside of a host. In conclusion, snails are some of the worst creatures around in terms of ability to infect you with gross things. They and their diseases are spreading, they're developing resistance to our best drugs, and you should definitely not get the escargot. And you will now think about this every time someone mentions eating snails. So snails are the land version of jellyfish. (laughs) Pretty much. If we were a sponsored podcast, here's where we would put the best ad where you spend the whole game defeating slugs. Now we're going to interrupt Parasite Cast by asking Laura what her segment's about. <laughs> I have a few things that I wanted to bring up as cursed knowledge. I want to preface it with saying I had a really hard time coming up with anything for this because I don't really find a lot of knowledge cursed. And especially as I kept repeatedly asking Jem to explain to me what this topic was, it became increasingly clear that this is something that people who live with more anxiety than me deal with far more often than I do. And for someone who's pretty high strung, for him to say, I guess you're just not as high strung as me, so you don't worry about these things, that that made a lot of sense. (laughs) So anyway, the idea of cursed knowledge, I honestly, I feel like a lot of what I know for my job is cursed knowledge because both in the I have to live with this sense and also in the curse of knowledge sense that Lauren was talking about, particularly in this health and diet obsessed world that we live in, this society. And so I find it, it is difficult. So it's just, just as a general thing, I find that knowing about nutrition, knowing about the calories and the grams of protein and things, looking at foods, it is interesting, but it also means that sometimes it's hard to just look at a food for what it is without doing that mental breakdown of things. And then you add in that layer of obsession with food and clean eating and health and all of these things. And it's tiring and not fun anymore so yeah just as a general statement and i know that's probably true for a lot of jobs and things like that but that's the first thing that came to mind 
That's one of the things that they talk about in that anti-diet book that we were talking about that you said Mm -hmm. is in your to-be-read pile. Yes. That (laughs) people who get really deep into diet culture and monitoring everything they eat, it just consumes them. Like, that's all they think about is food all the time, and that's so unhealthy. Guilty. Yeah, it is. And that is, yeah, I can see how that happens. It. It's a little different because it is your job. It is my job, but at the same time, you don't... My job deals with something that I have to do multiple times a day, every single day of my life, whether I am working or not, right? I have to eat. I am the main food preparation person for my family. I make those decisions, so I can't just leave it at the office because I'm going to encounter it in my own life. And earlier on in my career, I definitely was into that it becomes numbers it becomes these chemical things which again is interesting but you lose so much by doing that and it's so easy to then become obsessed with things and as many people as you learn more and gain more expertise your answer to yes or no questions becomes more frequently well it depends and that yeah. part, that as well makes it a bit cursed. It was a lot easier when, oh, I, yes, this is the calories of this. This is the protein of this. And then now it's more like, well, yes, but mm-hmm. <laughs> or kind of, but not really because of this. And yeah. So in general, I would say my chosen line of work is cursed knowledge. The next thing that I thought of as cursed knowledge for myself is the last time of thing. Mm. So The thing that comes to mind is something that often comes up on parenting sites or memes and things like that, or and and my friends have shared it. And the one that really sticks with me from time to time is that it's some variation of there will be a time that you pick up your child for the last time. And they're not referring to losing your child in some way. It's just that as children grow and mature, we stop picking them up for many very good reasons. And you don't know when that's going to be. And it will generally happen without any acknowledgement or fanfare. But that phase of life is just done. And I'm not even a parent. And I think about that meme all the time. Same here. I hate it. It makes me cry. It is. And and I saw a different twist of it today. It's like there was a time that your parents picked you up for the last time. And I was thinking about that again today and thinking like, yeah, when was the last time that I was very close in physical contact with my parents, aside from like a hug or something like that and how those things shift? And it makes you remember that sometimes you miss those things, but you didn't realize that you missed those things. I saw a reply. Sorry, I saw a reply from a mom where she said, just randomly, I'll pick up my adult sons just lift them an inch off the ground just so we can say I picked them up. (laughs) Yeah. And that one is, it's a really interesting one. At least as a parent, I am getting a little bit more sentimental as my kids are getting a bit older and getting out of the baby stages for good now. But I'm not one, I've never been one to be sentimental over every last, last thing. I've been, I've always tried to and, and enjoyed looking more at what's next for them. But that one is interesting. And it's, I breastfed both my kids, and that is something that the end of that relationship happens very differently for many people. But for me, I I made a concerted plan for that to end because that was the right choice for us there. 
And while that was the last time with that, I knew it was coming, right? And actually, interestingly, with Kira, it was more so. I knew I we kind of made a plan like, okay, we're done now. But with Huxley, I also had that plan. But then things actually just kind of ended a little bit earlier than expected. So even though I knew it was coming and I was preparing, it was still like not quite on my timeline. But that's different than I will realize one day I just haven't picked you up for a long time. And that's... When has Huxley ever done anything according to plan? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I know this now, but back when Huxley was 13 months old, I did not know that. (laughs) You were young and innocent. (laughs) Oh, God, no, I was just so tired. (laughs) I hate that. Now I'm depressed. (laughs) So, not to bring it down, and again, I don't want to dwell on those things, because there are the last times of all sorts of things that we don't know about. And that's just a part of life. And again, I don't worry about it so much, but it's one of those things that you you really think about when you get the opportunity. And lastly, mm-hmm. I do want to add something. Really, this is a phobia of mine, but I figured this goes really well with cursed knowledge. So I think I'm not alone in saying that sometimes I have a hard time sleeping and it's not just because I have too much to do or the kids wake me up or something like that. Anxiety will do that to you and and that. So sometimes it's hard to settle down, turn off that brain, right? But I know missing some sleep isn't going to kill me, right? You're killing me, Smalls. Except when you have familial fatal insomnia, it will. Has anybody heard of this before? What? What? <laughs> Fatal <laughs> insomnia? Now yeah. it's a new fear of mine, too. Thanks, Laura. <laughs> I'm going to lie awake at night thinking this is killing me. <laughs> right? 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 <laughs> this whole podcast is an information hazard. <laughs> yes. Like, I was, when Lauren was looking for a topic, I was like, well, you could find the next Roku's Basilisk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dig back in the archives to episode 88 if you want to learn more. But why? Why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> well, tell yeah. us how I'm going to die in my sleep. Come on. So, you, no, you actually die from not being able to sleep. That's so it, it yeah. is a ge- degenerative condition that is inherited that you just start losing the ability to sleep. Yep. And it usually crops up midlife. So you don't really know that it's coming right away. And over somewhere between six to 36 months, you just sleep less and less or the bit of sleep you do get becomes incredibly full of vivid dreams. So it's not restful and you get dementia and you get cardiac problems and autonomic problems and then you die. I think it's bad. It's I don't like this knowledge. (laughs) It's horrendous. So when you're really tired and you're going, what are the causes of insomnia? And you stumble across <laughs> familial fatal insomnia. Guess what? You're not oh, sleeping no. tonight. <laughs> See, this is my... exactly what I was thinking of when I suggested this topic. Yeah. The fact that my mother basically hasn't slept since 1985 doesn't make, doesn't make me feel any better about this. But that is Well, but like, all of your grandparents have lived forever. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry so... for the overtalk. Yeah, just in case anybody is worried, it is a rare disease, which we also did a podcast on. I don't remember which episode, but... On rare diseases. On rare diseases, yes. Specific disease. It's very, very rare. Right now, there is only 70 known families in the world that carry the trait. Mm. So you would probably know if you're part of a family like that. 
<laughs> and although, <laughs> fun fact, occasionally the gene polymorphism can just spring up and happen. Yeah. yeah. Same with pretty much fun anything. Times. Fun times. Yeah, it's interestingly, it's 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 a prion disease, much like Mad Cow or Creutzfeldt Jakob oh. disease. Interesting. Oh. I was going to ask you if it was sex linked at all. So I didn't see that it was sex linked, but it does have that same malformed protein problem that then basically like makes the nervous system stop working properly. So cool. Prions in general are terrifying. And like, like the fact mm-hmm. that they're like totally non-living, like j- just like little proteins that can essentially be inf- infectious. It kind of yeah. It, yeah, like two thumbs down on prions. Yeah, and it's it's wild because it's like it's it's your own proteins. Your body just made them the wrong shape, yep. and because of that, oopsie doodle, they just break everything. <laughs> and there's nothing you could do about it because. Again, if you have the gene for it, like this is a, largely, again, it's inherited. It's a genetic polymorphism. So from your DNA is telling your body to make this protein wrong. We don't have anything to do to stop that. Yeah. Take that, creationists. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. That is my curse knowledge. So all of you, when you're tossing and turning at night, you're welcome. Thank you so much for that new curse, Laura. Gonna lose so many listeners over this episode. (laughs) What can I say except you're welcome? And we're gonna close it out with another parasite story from Jim. So, like Ashlyn, I'm going to talk about parasites. No, this segment isn't about landlords, it's about mites. Which, as it turns out, are probably slightly less parasitic than landlords. So, this may be upsetting to hear, but I'm afraid that you may have an infestation. Let's not sugarcoat this. You probably have several. But the infestation that I'm talking about today is the Demodex genus of mites, Demodex follicularum and Demodex brevis, the mites that live on your face. I was going to say, are these the eyelash mites? Yep. I know about the eyebrow ones. So they're sometimes called eyelash mites. They're sometimes called eyebrow mites. They're very similar. They're very slightly different in size, but they aren't actually specific to eyelashes or eyebrows. Dimidex mites are microscopic, eight-legged arthropods, so they're technically arachnids, about 0.3 millimeters across. Their bodies are double-segmented and semi-transparent, and they live in the hair follicles and sebaceous glands of most adult humans. Babies I call are them born- eyeball spiders? No! No! Stop! Don't! I want to seize power and control through legion of spiders! That's horrible! Babies are born without the mites, but many are quickly colonized courtesy of their parents. Most studies estimate that at least half of adults play host to Demodex mites, though a recent small study from North Carolina found that 70% of children and 100% of adults were colonized. This varies from region to region, family to family, but pretty much every adult has these mites. Poof. During the day, the mites burrow face-first into the recesses of your pores and spend their time grinding away at the hairs of your face. And they subsist on a diet of keratinized skin cells and sebum, the oily substance that your sebaceous glands secrete to keep your skin from drying out. Since they eat sebum, they tend to congregate on the greasiest areas of your skin, typically the forehead, nose, and cheeks. 
Once you're asleep, they emerge from the recesses of your face and scuttle across your skin to meet up and mate. Then they return to your pores to lay their eggs. The population turns over about every fortnight or so. Typically, the mites are no threat to you, notwithstanding the psychological harm posed by simply finding out that they exist, which makes them technically not parasites, but commensalists. Though if their numbers grow large enough, they can actually cause a disease called demosidosis, or demodectic mange. I'll quote Conde... Oh, I didn't know that. Yucky. Ugh. I'll quote Conde Shinkai, a dermatologist at UC San Francisco. Quote, There's a very particular look to people suffering from demodicosis. We call it the demodex frost. It's sort of a white sheen on the skin. And if you look really closely, you can see it coming out of every pore. If you scrape those pores, you can see it frothing with little demodex face mites. Oh my god! Recent studies have also revealed an association with other dermatologic ailments, such as psoriasis, especially in immunocompromised individuals. But it's unclear at this point whether the mites actually contribute to the disease or simply flourish as a result of changes to the skin. But in those with functional immune systems, it is extremely rare for Demodex to cause harm to its host. There is one other bit of information that I encountered while reading about Demodex mites that I wanted to share. And I have no idea whether this fact will be a silver lining or some new horror. No, definitely <laughs> new horror. Like, 100% new horror. Oh, Demodex no. mites are arguably quite clean, owing to the fact that while they do eat a fair bit, they never once in their lives actually excrete. Mm. Instead of pooping in your pores, these little guys just store their excrement inside their bodies for their entire lives, like little shit balloons. <laughs> light of them it balloons i was initially going to do a segment about a different bug as well but my other thing got too long and i'm looking forward to doing it on like a cryptids show or something and i am excited to compare it to these things they're quite similar nice you all know about the tongue-eating louse right uh. yes <laughs> yes they replace your tongue oh they, god they, they can't do it with humans it's only for fish a louse that eats something's tongue. Yep. Yeah, it goes in through the gills and it detaches the fish's tongue and the female louse sort of sits in place of the tongue and then the male louse, male lice come behind and impregnate her. And they're parasitic to the to the fish, but they are they don't kill it. They just live off of its resources until it dies. Yeah, Google tongue eating louse. The pictures no, are cool. Thanks. Nope. <laughs> I'm good, thanks. They're only 8 to 29 millimeters long. Okay, okay, okay. We, we need to move on to something nice immediately. <laughs> Sorry, everybody else had a gross segment. I wanted one, too. That was all you had, Jim? Yep, that was it. All right. We're making great time on this episode. Not exactly sweet, but at least short. <laughs> Yeah, if you chose to miss this episode, at least you won't feel too bad. So, who's got something nice prepared? I do, but I just finished <laughs> speaking, so somebody else should go. Okay, I'll go. Before we started this recording, we decided to do our supernatural thing, our VR workout, which we talked about last time. And I did a really fun 
19 minute EDM thing that was boxing and it was super fun. Boom, boom, boom. Moving around a lot. I was like, oh, this is really getting my abs. I'm glad we're on the last song. I stopped it and I realized I had not changed it from Lauren's profile to my profile. Thanks Uh. for the points, hon. And you know that I really care deeply about my streaks and I really needed it to not be a blank day on my account if I had done a workout. (laughs) So I went over to my account and I was looking for something short and I found a hard workout that had some symphony that I don't remember and also the (laughs) (laughs) can-can. It was only five minutes long, but I had never done a hard one before. So I was like, okay, I can do five minutes of whatever hard mode is. And I got something like 99.8% accuracy. I'm so proud of myself right now. Nice. Nice. It was really freaking hard, though. (laughs) It was fun to watch. (laughs) That's great. That's my something nice. I can go next. My something nice is and continues to be our cat, Leah. She's just so freaking adorable. And sometimes when I'm really stressed, all I need is to cuddle with the cat, and she's always obliging to cuddle. It's been a stressful kind of month, and this cat has been very helpful. So I just want to send my shout out to the little snoring log on the couch. (laughs) Aww. 15 to 17 pounds of warm fluff on your lap is always an improvement to your day. Except when she steps right on the bladder. Sorry, Laura. (laughs) No. That's that's okay. Even the sweetest cats can be jerks sometimes. What's your something nice, Laura? My something nice is that over the last couple of weeks, I have done more baking because it was Easter and we celebrate Easter and I'm Ukrainian. And so I make paskas and that's always really fun and delicious. And baking is such a wonderful thing because you get to the fruits of your labor. And who doesn't like bread? I love bread. Especially when it's Mm -hmm. sweet and rich Mm, bread. So I've been making pascas and I made poppy seed rolls and they were tasty. And I'm going to eat some of that tonight. So Mm. it's been just lovely to make my annual pascas and practice my dough braiding and things like that. You've also been doing a bunch of pisanka, right? Yes, I've also been making a lot of pisanka or Ukrainian Easter eggs. So my, I'm getting better and better. It's really hard. <laughs> they are extremely pretty. She's really good at it. Well, I am pretty good at it with the tools that I have. And mm. hopefully next year I will get some different size kistkas and then I can make Ooh. more patterns. I saw your pictures on social media and they are gorgeous. Don't sell yourself short. Thank you. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm very proud of some of the things, especially this year that I've done. But it is not an easy art to master. <laughs> yeah. TikTok has been showing me pictures of some of the making ofs, mm. and it is very intricate. But now I have finally have like a real grasp of how it's done with the little stylus thing. That's really cool. You all should come over and do it with me. My stuff is available anytime. So I think that would be fun. Yeah. Just putting that out we were We were supposed to learn how to do it on Saturday, but the person who was going to teach us got exposed to COVID. No! Oh, well, yeah. I'm, yeah, side note, I'm happy to do that. So <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. What's your something nice, Jim? My something nice this month is a little video game called Tunic. I had been following the development of this game for, for five years, and it's something that had 
been on my radar. It kind of looked like an old Legend of Zelda game. It had gone through a couple different names over the years. And it was a game that I was like, oh, that, that looks like a cool kind of retro type thing. I'll probably find the time to play it at some point. It actually came out last month. And it is one of those pleasant surprises where the game is so much more than I was expecting. It is it definitely has old school Zelda vibes. It's kind of isometric, sort of top down on an angle view of this little fox who's dressed like Link running around and with a sword and like that. But the game is extremely mysterious. So at the start, you just wake up on an island and have no idea who you are, what you're supposed to do. But you've played a video game before, so you pick yourself up off the ground and you start wandering around and you see a door and you go into it and there's a chest and there's a prompt to hit A and you open up the chest and you get a stick. But the text that appears on the screen when you get the stick looks like gibberish, some kind of weird runes. And as you keep wandering, you eventually realize that you can equip the stick and swing it around with one of your buttons. But there's no explanation for what you're trying to do. But you see some blobs, and they attack you, so you swing your stick at them, and eventually you defeat them. And as you explore, you find a page from an instruction book. And it appears to be the instruction book for the game that you're currently playing. Unfortunately, it is also written in this non-English language. <laughs> Can you and use it to translate? <laughs> so the, the game is, first of all, it, it is a good Zelda type game, a good sort of top-down action-adventure game. Some people have complained about the combat feeling a, a bit loose. I don't find that. It just takes a bit of getting used to, but it's a, it's a fun game. But the added layers of mystery and there's the secrets around every corner and the constant thought of what is going on, uh, it all, the game kind of unravels. And it reminds me a lot of a game that I mentioned probably two years ago called Outer Wilds, which remains probably my favorite game of all time. And I think either late last year or earlier this year, I mentioned the DLC for Outer Wilds, which is also quite good. And although the gameplay is very different between Outer Wilds and Tunic, they share that sense of discovery. Lots of things in Tunic you could do immediately. But a lot of the game, a lot of the play of the game is the discovery and the mystery and the figuring out what you have to do. And the game is extremely clever in doling out sort of breadcrumbs that you can pick up to figure out what you're supposed to do. I spent probably eight to ten hours beating the game for the first time and then another maybe four hours getting the kind of final ending but there were still a few threads to pick at and it's now at the point where i th i have one item left on my checklist that i haven't quite figured out yet i know where i'm supposed to go but i haven't quite figured out what i'm supposed to do and but there are still other threads to pull and i am 90 percent of the way through fully deciphering the made-up language in the book so that I can translate uh. the hint pages in the in-game manual, which I found all of the pieces of, 
to actually decipher the last clue, which will tell me what I need to do to get this last collectible thing. It is so exactly my thing, this game. I, and I'm just, I'm having a lovely time with that. It, yes, I should be studying for my population health final on Friday and my dermatology final the following Friday. This is something nice. Don't ruin this. This is something nice. I'm going to, I'm doing this instead and (laughs) I'm enjoying the hell out of it. So I think the game is like 30 bucks, something like that on steam. Your currency may vary. It's also available on Xbox. And I think it might be on game pass for anybody who has game pass. I could not recommend it highly enough. So long as you can deal with sort of not knowing what you need to do and deal with having stuff pop up in an unknown language. Just treat it like gibberish and move on. You don't need to be able to decipher any of the text to actually play the game. You can Hmm. get through the entire game and get the so-called true ending without understanding any of the text. There is enough clues, but I'm gonna I'm gonna finish solving it. (laughs) Uh, You have thoroughly convinced me not to play this game. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Once we're done recording, I'll show you my notebook. I'll I'll send you some pages. I'm I love it. I have said in the past, this is not just a new thing that I need to be handheld all the way through a game. Like I prefer side scrollers where there's only one direction to go. <laughs> <laughs> and that's totally fair. And, and I'm sure many of our listeners are like that too. If like a lot of our listeners probably don't really play games, maybe aside from a crossword on their phone or something. But even among those who do play games, like lots of people just aren't into this sort of game. That's totally fine. And if this doesn't sound like your thing, don't do yeah, it. I'm, I'm glad it's there for the people who have your brain. Yeah, my, <laughs> my particular brain. Oof. There are lots of side scrollers out there for me, although I really wish that Mario would come out with just a new Super Mario Brothers. That's what I want. I just want endless iterations of the same game, please. <laughs> like so like the side scrolling ones instead of the 3D ones is that what you Yeah, like? I mean I also love Galaxy though, but there's always a clear goal, get to the star. Yeah. End of level. Galaxy is I I love the exploration of 64 and Sunshine and I like I like Galaxy 2, but I love that. And I think we've discussed how yeah. Sunshine is like the one game I've played and hated of Mario. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah. All right, well that was a good show everybody. I think that was really fun. Yeah. What are Depressing we as I thought. Not as depressing as you thought. <laughs> find a list of 10 more parasites, so if uh, we want. I mean, we could do a whole parasite show. There's lots of horrifying parasites. I don't think our listenership can withstand the onslaught of back-to-back parasite talk. Oh, yes, definitely not. Actually, we have a guest host coming for next month's episode. Our delightful editor, Marissa, will be coming to host a show on icebergs. We were actually talking about cursed knowledge, and like you, Laura, there was some confusion about what cursed knowledge is exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And we got to talking about these icebergs, which are apparently a YouTube phenomenon where people will go on these ridiculous deep dives into conspiracy theories that get increasingly weirder the more layers you peel off. Sounded like an interesting topic, but... I think that we should just each pick something that we would like to do a brief overview of a deep dive that we have done. Does that make sense? Sure. Oh, okay. Um, to pick a new obsession? Y- y- yeah, or you well, can do an old one. Scientology again? 
<laughs> I mean, hey, if you want to do another crack at Scientology, that's always fun. Xenu does seem like the classic, like the Ur example of that iceberg that you're, yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, I've learned so much more, and we still have to reuse that drop the body sound effect. And if I have butchered this explanation, I'm going to put an opportunity here. And if desired, you can go ahead and record a better explanation. <laughs> Marissa, what are we talking about next month? Hello, Marissa here. An iceberg isn't so much conspiracy theory as much as it is you start at the top level, kind of like the iceberg metaphor for anything else, and you start with stuff that is either fact or things that are pretty likely to be true. And it's about a topic or something that you really enjoy, something you really want to delve into. And the further deeper that you go, the weirder, stranger, and perhaps more, not unrealistic, but fantastical things may get. So say, if you were doing a Game of Thrones iceberg, at the top would be some of the fan theories that are not even theories anymore. The stuff that, if it isn't already happening, then it's pretty obvious. But at the bottom, you might have something like, Tyrion is a space-traveling time wizard that planted himself inside the womb of Joanna Lannister in order to resurrect a dragon and become a total time lord. So, that should give you some idea. Within this context, we don't have time to go through seven hours of some of the lengths of these icebergs. But I figure, a vague enough topic, and given what this show is, just being able to go deeper and find the really weird stuff that you can mention and list as you go deeper into the iceberg, although we'll be doing a much more miniature version of a lot of them, I think that would be a lot of fun. So think of something where you know a lot about it, you have a passion for it, and then the deeper you go, the weirder it gets. Hope that suffices. See you all next month. Thanks, Marissa. And we look forward to recording with you next time. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And leave us a review. Write some words. We like it. Thank you. Bye. Oh, yeah, that helps. Please do it. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. One four nine dollars per tissue, so a dollar forty nine cents per tissue. A dollar forty nine cents per tissue. Uh, sorry, my name okay. is Ashlyn Noble. Ooh. Oh, I'm sorry. Are are we going to have that part, or were we just going to go from the uh, intro music to "My Name Is Ashlyn Noble"? Presumably, they know what show they're listening to. Yeah, that's true. We even need that part, but it's the shtick. It is the shtick, but that shtick usually goes before the music. I understand, yeah. But I still feel like I should say okay. that today's show is called Cursed Knowledge in some way. Yes. 
Yes, in case they think, oh, did they change the podcast without telling anybody? <laughs> <laughs> all curse knowledge all the time. Yeah, okay, I got it. I got Welcome it. Welcome to my life. <laughs> Lauren Bailey. L- Lauren Bailey. Bailey. Hello? Lauren Bailey. One second. <laughs> okay, well, at ah. least they're there. <laughs> can you guys hear me? We yep. can okay, now. now. <laughs> okay, because I had said hello a couple of times. Could not hear a thing.